Klitsch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to the authors of two books. First, we talk to Osman Balkan about his book, Dying Abroad. Then we turn to Sahar Aziz and talk about her new book, The Racial Muslim. Thanks for listening to the podcast. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book episode, we talk to Usman Balkan, the Associate Director of the Huntsman Program at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of the new book, Dying Abroad, The Political Afterlives of Migration in Europe, uh, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Usman, it's it's so wonderful to have you here. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your invitation, Mark. So it's wonderful to see this book out. We've been talking about this for a decade now, it seems like. Um, and uh, it's just a really wonderfully written book. Tell us a little bit about it, where it came from, and what you were trying to accomplish with it. Great, thank you. And uh, I should say that uh, you know part of this work was presented at a POMEPS workshop uh, on uh, Islam in Europe, uh, hosted by uh, Mark in Paris a, a few years back. So uh, I appreciate POMEPS support over the years in, in helping develop some of these ideas. Uh, the book Dying Abroad. Uh, it's an ethnographic study uh, of the end-of-life dilemmas of uh, what I call Muslims of Turkish and Kurdish descent uh, in Germany. And I use this kind of admittedly awkward phrase rather than describing uh, these communities as immigrants or uh, diasporas or Turkish Germans. I, I refer to them as Muslims of Turkish and Kurdish descent in Germany to speak to the sort of awkward and ambivalent position that uh, many of them uh, find themselves is um, uh, neither inside uh, the political com community or not quite outside of it, this position of inclusion, exclusion. And um, the book grows out of my longstanding interest in migration and transnationalism. Uh, and it is a, a it's my first book, so it was initially a, a dissertation in the political science department at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And I set out to understand um, how do these communities, these minoritized communities, um, navigate and make sense of difficult end-of-life questions, uh, such as uh, where will you be buried? Um, for many migrants, the uh, migratory journeys are characterized by the myth of return. And I think this is something that both uh, migrant families and policymakers believe that immigrants will come, stay a little while, make some money, uh, go home. Um, but as, as the uh, child of immigrants, uh, myself as a first-generation American whose, whose parents came here from Turkey, uh, these kind of conversations animated uh, much of my childhood, back and forth, are, are we here, are we there? And uh, for many of my interlocutors, I, I found that they were uh, similarly um, preoccupied by questions of home, belonging, identity, citizenship, um, and that these questions were continually uh, deferred uh, until we get, get to what might be uh, termed the critical juncture of death, where this decision has to be made about what do we do with the body? And so those end-of-life uh, dilemmas around burial, shall we bury locally, shall we repatriate to countries of origin, to me offered a really interesting window into understanding the lived experience of transnational migration 
the lived experience of uh, you know uh, being a minority, uh, being a Muslim minority in in, in Western Europe, um, where there was still some uh, sort of public uh, questions about whether or not you truly belong. It offered up a moment where people could reflect um, uh, deeply about these what I thought as being profound existential and also profoundly important political questions about uh, the nature of citizenship and belonging uh, in, in the 21st century. So all of those conversations mm -hmm. that had been deferred over the course of a lifetime uh, came to the fore in these end-of-life moments. And so I sought to better understand um, the lived experiences of Muslims of Turkish and Kurdish descent in Germany by focusing on these end-of-life rituals and practices, uh, hence the title, uh, Dying Abroad. Yep. So let's, before we get into the details of it, maybe you yep. can talk a little bit about kind of what, what the stakes of this are in terms of the expectations, both, uh, both uh, through Islam and also through nationality of burial. Mm -hmm. what, what are the stakes of, for these individuals of where and how a deceased family member is, uh, is buried? Yep, uh, that's a great question. And uh, Muslims, uh, like other religious faiths, uh, especially in, in Judaism, there's the expectation that the body will be buried as quickly as possible after death. Uh, many have interpreted this to be 24 hours or 48 hours. There's no uh, written stipulations, but uh, the idea is that the uh, body is, is still sentient until uh, it, it uh, is put into the ground. So it ought to be buried as, as quickly as possible. Um, this tradition, the, the sort of temporal requirements, there's other requirements such as being buried without a coffin in a shroud, you know, facing towards Mecca and so on. Uh, but the temporal requirement uh, is the one that poses the most immediate uh, sort of bureaucratic obstacles because, uh, as you might imagine, uh, if a family chooses to repatriate uh, the body to a country of origin for burial, uh, process can take time. There's a lot of uh, bureaucratic steps involved, a lot of paperwork. Uh, it could take up to a week. Um, uh, furthermore, if, if families do choose to bury uh, locally in, in Germany, um, there's other obstacles at work, such as the lack of availability of um, appropriate cemeteries for Muslim burials. And this is a problem not just in Germany, but in you know all across Europe. I think it's a big public policy. Uh, concern, but in Germany, less than one percent of cemeteries have dedicated spaces for uh, Muslim burials, and this figure is is pretty constant in in many Western European countries with sizable Muslim populations. France, UK, uh, Denmark. These are um, uh, Italy. These are all uh, countries facing uh, sort of similar, uh, you know, challenges with respect to the availability of. Um, of cemetery space for Muslims. Muslims um, uh, are usually buried in, in, in these sections, right? Amongst other Muslims, it's, it's, it's pretty rare to see uh, uh, multi-confessional uh, burial zones, but in practice, this is what um, does end up happening if a family decides to bury locally um, and there's no available space for, for a Muslim burial, they'll, they'll bury them where, wherever possible. Um, so those are some of the kind of religious and, and, mm -hmm. and bureaucratic uh, um, uh, questions, but I feel like there was more to your uh, question well, maybe that I can elaborate on. 
Well, because it's interesting, right? Because in a sense, like the idea of repatriation is built upon the expectation that ultimately Turkey is the home and you yes. want family to be able to visit and pay their respects and the like. But then over multi-generations, you've had these communities that that they are multi-generational in Germany. And maybe that is where the family is and want to pay their respects. And that, that's kind of what I was really got me thinking about how this becomes such an interesting window into the nature of migration and citizenship. Absolutely. And, and I think that's at the core of the what the book is trying to, to demonstrate here, how, how the corpse or the, the dead body becomes uh, almost an agentic force in, in the world. It's It serves as a kind of an anchor. Um, it can be uh, an anchor that's based on connections with future generations, such as, you know, children, grandchildren, uh, burial in Germany or in Europe uh, uh, serves as a powerful signal of, of belonging. It, it kind of closes the loop on the migratory history and says, uh, okay, here's the the physical proof that we're here to stay, we're, we're burying our dead here. And many of my um, interview partners mentioned that uh, one of the driving motivations to, to choose to be buried locally would be so that their children and grandchildren, uh, you know, um, would be able to come visit their grave and that they recognize that the families were here to stay. Conversely, and, and this is the kind of Janus-faced uh, nature of this um, uh, predicament, for others, the desire to repatriate to uh, ancestral soils for burial, uh, you know, they, they didn't necessarily view this as a kind of a nationalistic or patriotic practice per se. Um, although some some did uh, find that uh, a sense of social exclusion in Germany led them, you know, experiences with discrimination and so on, said that, you know, in, in one very memorable quote they have, uh, uh, older gentleman who says, you know, I was always an Auslander in Germany. I was always a foreigner in Germany. Why should I be an Auslander in my grave? Right. Mm. right? So that was an argument for repatriation. But for many families, the uh, desire to keep alive the connections uh, to ancestral soils, to ancestral homelands, um, having uh, the grave be close to their ancestors, let's say. So there was a kind of a genealogical continuity between grandparents, great-grandparents, and, and the current generation, and an opportunity for the relatives who uh, survive uh, to come visit the grave and maintain some kind of affective connection to the homeland. Uh, in both cases, the body served as a kind of an anchor uh, to... Um, you know, uh, put into practice uh, uh, a set of kind of rituals and connections and, um, you know, feelings of, of belonging and, and as a way to uh, reproduce that uh, kinship both transnationally and also intergenerationally. So uh, you're right to, to, to put your finger on that. That's very much what I saw also yeah. as being a kind of unique feature of, you know, these burial uh, decisions that, go beyond the mere practical question of, you know, hey, what do we do with this with this body? There was a whole symbolic world that opens up, I think. Yeah, you talk about just now this idea of the corpse becoming agentic. And, you know, more broadly, mm -hmm. you place this within this concept of necropolitics, uh, Kilima Bembe's mm -hmm. uh, influential mm -hmm. term. This probably isn't as familiar to many people in political science who are not working within that particular type of political anthropology. 
talk a little bit about kind of the theoretical, you know, <clears throat> of the book and 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 why we should be looking at these end of life uh, moments as windows into citizenship in the state. So uh, Mbembe uh, was a big uh, intellectual influence for me, of course, in necropolitics work. Um, he's very much concerned, I think, in, in his corpus um, about uh, the changing nature of sovereign power uh, um, and how, you know, we have a shift um, from uh, basically what, uh, how Foucault described uh, in, in, in his work is make uh, die, let live to Mbembe sort of picks up on this and he says, make live, let die um, a little bit uh, to, to think through how sovereignty can be exercised as as a kind of an abandonment or kind of a willful neglect. Uh, and he points to particular examples um, in Palestine uh, where he describes these the existence of necro-political worlds of, of sort of sovereign abandonment where populations are in mass uh, sort of left left to die, right? Um, my work departs a little bit from uh, Mbembe's framing in, in that I was, um, <clears throat> while I am interested in questions of, of sovereignty and the body, um, I am interested in questions of, uh, you know, the, the vested interests that states have in, in these corpses. And this is something we can return to. States are mm -hmm. sort of one actor among many here that lays claim on what happens to their bodies and cares about, you know, what um, what they signify. Um, I was curious also in um, uh, taking, uh, you know, the, the necropolitical dimension as, as a starting point, but very much looking at its uh, everyday iterations. Uh, and here I was inspired by a lot of work. Um, uh, Tom LeCour's book, uh, The Work of the Dead. Tom LeCour is a historian at, at Berkeley. Catherine Verdery, mm -hmm. Catherine Verdery's book, uh, the anthropologist uh, Catherine Verdi, who uh, wrote the great book, The Political Lives of Dead Bodies, looking at um, transformations in, in uh, East, Eastern Europe in the fall of communism and the role of of the dead in uh, reimagining social worlds. Um, I was interested in thinking, melding together some of the literature on kind of sovereign investment in bodies and 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 death worlds, uh, with literatures on the politics of memory and commemoration. And um, um, so, a lot of the the theory that I'm drawing on, it's quite uh, interdisciplinary. Um, I, I rely on work of a lot of anthropologists and historians and mm -hmm. sociologists and political theorists and uh, political scientists as well. And ultimately, uh, the work is an ethnographic one. I, I spent um, um, a lot of time in, in Berlin and Istanbul. I, I worked as an undertaker uh, uh, at several different uh, funeral homes in, in Berlin trying to understand the intricacies and the complications and complexities of these worlds of, um, of death workers in, in Germany. Um, the funeral homes that I uh, worked at uh, were um, all Islamic funeral homes, which is also a kind of a novel uh, site uh, and a novel consequence of migration um, because most of the funeral homes in, in Germany before uh, we had um, uh, large numbers of Muslims living there were, were catering 
uh, not to, to Muslim uh, communities. So a lot of these are immigrant entrepreneurs who founded funeral homes to meet the growing needs of uh, culturally appropriate funerals. So um, uh, theoretically, it's 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 a kind of a, a rich set of inter interlocutors, interdisciplinary interlocutors, uh, focusing on the politics of death and dead bodies and commemoration, uh, especially uh, politics of mourning and commemoration. And um, methodologically, you know, it's an ethnographic approach that takes seriously um, lived experiences, uh, oral histories, life stories. I did a lot of interviews and. Um, much of the book also draws on my my own experience as a participant observer uh, in the Islamic funeral homes working on, uh, among uh, the undertakers. And there's several sections of the book that are sort of uh, free-flowing um, field notes uh, that try to add texture by putting the reader in, in the spaces that I was uh, myself traveling through uh, to better understand the complexities of, of living and dying uh, transnationally. Yeah, and it really it really works quite well. Uh, let's go through this kind of like step by step. So first off, you do okay. talk a lot um, early in the book about the development of, inst of, of bureaucratic institutions, how the Turkish state um, kind of developed a set of institutions to facilitate these kinds of transfers of um, of, of remains and and. and to facilitate these burials. T t tell us a little bit about that and kind of the politics and the institutional nature of those adaptations. Sure. So um, for, for those who may be less familiar with the sort of history of the guest worker migration to Germany, I mean, this is a program uh, that the German state launches in, in the mid-60s to uh, well, as early as 61, actually, to um, um, fill in shortages of manpower, of labor power. They are recruiting from Southern Europe uh, and also uh, North Africa and, and the Middle East. Turkey in particular becomes a uh, one of the largest sending countries of, of uh, guest workers to, to Germany. And uh, as I mentioned before, a lot of this was undertaken with the premise of the, the kind of myth of return that this is a temporary program is, as the name implies, guest worker. Uh, it's a temporary program, cyclical, um, you know, uh, workers needed to renew their uh, work permits so on. But many of them ended up um, staying long term. And as they settled, uh, the Turkish state became uh, invested in um, a lot of uh, pastoral care of of its diasporas abroad. Uh, Jonathan Lawrence has has a great book uh, that that uh, focuses on the the sort of uh, diaspora governmentality uh, of Turkish state um, among many uh, states who was concerned about what their populations abroad uh, were up to, especially in Western Europe. And part of the reason for their concern was there was a lot of political organization happening. Um, uh, especially during uh, moments of military rule in Turkey, a lot of leftists uh, organi organizing, Kurdish organizing, they, they viewed uh, sort of potential uh, threats from abroad. Uh, um, and so they created institutions that would, uh, beyond mere sort of consular functions, uh, institutions that would tend to various dimensions of uh, diasporic life. Uh, one of these um, uh, is an outgrowth of the Turkish Ministry of Religious Affairs, the Diyanet, which is a powerful uh, organization in Turkish politics that 
um, uh, regulates uh, uh, basically sort of public expressions of, of Islam and, and regulates the state's relationship with Islam. It helps write textbooks and so on. Uh, trains all the imams uh, in Turkey. All the Turkish imams are state employees, civil servants. So this is all through the Ministry of uh, or the Directorate of Religious Affairs, the Diyanet. Diyanet establishes a, a, a European uh, uh, branch, and um, in Germany, um, uh, under begins to undertake a, uh, many different avenues of um, social, cultural, religious, and political outreach and, and programming. Um, these include things like celebration of, of Eid or Turkish national holidays. They they help um, finance the construction of mosques or, or prayer halls. They bring in uh, imams from Turkey to provide uh, pastoral care to, to Turkish diasporas, sermons often in, in, in Turkish. And one of the uh, activities that it also engages in uh, alongside several other organizations is the institution of a, uh, a burial fund, uh, uh, which is essentially a repatriation fund. Um, it's a system uh, wherein an individual becomes a member. There's certain criteria for, for membership. These criteria have changed over the years at the, at the time of writing um, it was only Turkish uh, citizens who were eligible to apply for the Dianets Fund. And you pay an annual membership fee. And when um, the member dies, uh, the fund will um, step in and take care of all of the um, necessary uh, um, bureaucratic and uh, practical um, tasks involving uh, local burial or repatriation. Um, now, there's a whole universe of these funds, um, and it's not unique to Turkey or the Turkish diaspora. In fact, when I started doing this research, I was struck by uh, the existence of many um, civil society uh, associations founded by immigrants and diasporic communities dedicated to these end-of-life questions of, of burial and repatriation. This is quite common uh, across the world in, in the U.S., uh, uh, there's uh, sort of examples of this with Mexican communities. Um, but the Dianet the, the is uh, uh, somewhat distinct in that it's connected to the Turkish state. It's part of this European branch of the Ministry of Religious Affairs. And I contrast uh, its activities with another um, uh, repatriation, with another burial fund uh, run by Midli Gurish, which is an Islamist organization. Mm -hmm. um, that is, uh, you know, has a long history in Turkish politics, but has also um, some European branches uh, also uh, working to provide cultural and religious services to Muslim communities in, in, in Europe. And, um, you know, I worked through, I worked through, I, I analyzed their um, membership forms and their sort of legal forms. And I was able to speak to some fund administrators, but it wasn't always so easy to get uh, interviews. And I was curious there how they might help to incentivize or to um, facilitate repatriation over local burial. And in what sense did they have a stake in this process of where the body ends up? And I found that, you know, uh, many of these funds, um, the Dianet Fund, for example, would not cover any of the costs associated with being buried in, in Germany or in France or in Denmark or 
uh, which, which is a sizable cost, the cost of the burial plot, the, uh, you know, the tombstone, these sorts of things. And I, and I saw that they were providing some material incentives for repatriation of the body, uh, but also reading through their advertisements and their funding, uh, you know, all of their uh, forms. Uh, I also saw that they were involved in uh, helping to produce, to reproduce, I should say, a kind of a, a myth of return uh, narrative where uh, the only natural place for Turkish corpses uh, uh, to be put to rest would be in, in Turkey, right? There was this idea that um, the dead belong in a certain place and uh, that these institutions were invested in facilitating that. And this I read is a kind of um, a sort of a necropatriotism. I think that's the term I, mm-hmm. I use in, in, in the book. Um, but I saw these institutions as being one of several actors, uh, uh, you know, alongside families and, and um, you know, the undertakers and, the, you know, other sort of uh, state yeah. institutions. One of several actors that is invested in, in what happens to dead bodies and what they signify. And I saw that they were helping to facilitate a large traffic of, of, of return, which is in a sense helping to reproduce this um, uh, diasporic consciousness and, and uh, ultimate fulfillment of the uh, migratory process is having your body come back to the to the soil. So I saw the, the uh, corpses endowing, helping to almost renationalize the soils. You know, there's something uh, important at stake in getting the body back to its proper place. Now, on the on the flip side of it, then, in your ethnographic work, as you actually work as an undertaker um, and mm-hmm. kind of observe this, it's, there's so much about that that's fascinating. But one part that really jumped out at me was the way in which these, uh, you know, they, they become one of the key um, kind of brokers between individuals and the state. And uh, they, they have to learn how to navigate these multiple bureaucracies and and everything. And that, that, I thought that was quite interesting, not the sort of thing one might usually expect, but it makes sense when you start thinking about it. The undertakers uh, are critical cultural intermediaries. And, and in this way, you know, their, their profession is, is um, similar, I, I think, to other sort of immigrant entrepreneurs who serve as brokers between um, minority communities in the state. Uh, what I found interesting in uh, in my lengthy conversations, you know, I I, I spent um, uh, several months working in 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 five or six different funeral homes, and I had a lot of both formal interviews, but also kind of casual uh, participant observation and and casual conversations as we were uh, going from one place to another. You know, I helped them in. Uh, every aspect of their work um, from, you know, picking up um, corpses from hospitals or morgues to taking them to cemeteries and actually burying them or taking them to the um, uh, airport to, uh, you know, to be repatriated. Um, and what I found interesting in, uh, in, in their approach was that they were both, you know, hampered by the layers of red tape and in the book i detail uh, in this almost kafka-esque process of the paper trail the paperwork that one has to um, accumulate in order to you know uh, undertake the process of burying a body 
they were both annoyed and impeded by it, but they also saw the bureaucracy as functioning, or knowledge of the bureaucracy as functioning as the key metric of integration. So they were um, chided some of their customers for being unfamiliar with the laws and rules and regulations of of the German bureaucracy, thinking, for example, they could do something on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, and so they uh, saw part of their role as pedagogical in, in sort of uh, teaching uh, uh, their clients about the proper functioning of the bureaucratic orders that uh, they lived under. Um, but the pedagogical function worked both ways because they were in their day-to-day -day dealings uh, interacting with um, you know the street level bureaucrats of the German state of the German uh, civil service. So a lot of the uh, um, pedagogical work they did with the civil servants involved dispelling um, widely held stereotypes and myths about Muslims and, and Islam in, in Germany. So they found themselves sometimes willingly uh, in the case of certain undertakers who would give classes at uh, police academies or at hospitals mm -hmm. or places about, you know, how do we, um, what do we do when a, a Muslim dies? What is the appropriate um, um, rituals and practices? But sometimes they found this task of being a spokesman uh, placed upon them unwillingly. They were, uh, you know, pressured to speak as Muslims, uh, for Muslims in, in a way that um, uh, to correct uh, sort of um, stereotypes about Islam and violence or about Islam and uh, modernity and so on. Um, so I did see them as these crucial actors as uh, as both cultural brokers, but as intermediaries who were on the one hand teaching lessons about the German state and German society to their customers and their clients, and on the other hand teaching lessons about Islam and Muslims, of course German citizens, right, to the to the German state. So they, they were um, uh, uh, kind of fascinating brokers in that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. So last thing, though, in addition to the theory and the ethnography, you also do this really interesting uh, study of inscriptions on the headstones across these cemeteries. And just really briefly, walk us through that a little bit and kind of why it's important and what you found. Sure. So... <laughs> Folks who have traveled with me abroad, they they they, uh, they get annoyed sometimes because whenever I go to a new city, the one of the first things I want to do is go visit a cemetery to uh, take in the um, the landscape um, and especially you know these few um, Muslim cemeteries that exist across Europe. I see these spaces, um, you know, I, I I write about them as Europe's Islamic deathscapes um, and. Uh, you know, I, I do a visual ethnography in the book that draws on, you know, several hundred tombstones that I've cataloged, taken photos of and, and cataloged in a number of European countries. I was interested in representations of personhood and identity on the tombstones of these graves. And I saw uh, these spaces, although they're they're rare in practice, as I mentioned earlier, um, big public policy concern is just the lack of availability of burial grounds for Muslims in many European countries. Although they, they may be few in practice, they're deeply, uh, they're suffused with deep cultural meaning. Um, they are places where we're able to observe the changing contours of uh, Europe's multicultural uh, social fabric. 
And the tombstones themselves uh, offer uh, kind of a unique way to understand articulations of personhood and identity. We would see things like um, multilingual inscriptions uh, with uh, inscriptions in German and Turkish or in Arabic and German, um, you know, indicating a kind of, a, you know, the, the multilingual um, uh, heritage. We'd see things such as uh, images of flags, right, which are clear markers of a kind of a national affiliation. But um, in a contradictory manner, you know, if you see a Turkish flag on a grave in Berlin, it's sort of sending a sort of a contradictory message that the person may have affiliations elsewhere, but the body is is still here. You'd see uh, one of the most unique features that I saw was uh, uh, tombstones built in the likeness of mini mosques. Mm. So um, you'd have uh, tombstones shaped with minarets and domes. And, you know, I've got photos of all of these in the book as well. And um, this is something I hadn't seen uh, outside of Europe. But, you know, I, I read this in, in a way that, you know, there's so many controversies of the construction of actual mosques and minarets in European cities. Uh, often these are uh, banned for various, you know, noise ordinances or building regulations. And I saw uh, efforts to, um, you know, build graves in the likeness of mosques or to have these multilingual inscriptions or to have flags of uh, other countries to mark, you know, a birthplace outside of Germany. I saw all of these as a kind of a, a quiet um, uh, but ongoing way to normalize um, symbols and markers of religious difference and uh, multiculturalism um, that maybe uh, would eventually their, their effect would neutralize some of the, you know, more uh, contentious public debates around Islam in Europe, uh, should we build a mosque or not. I saw the, the cemetery is actually reflecting more accurately in some ways um, the heterogeneous and diverse composition of these societies. Um, and so I would encourage uh, folks out there, it's really fascinating to, to walk through burial grounds to get a sense of the uh, changing nature of, of, of social fabrics. So that's what I was trying to do uh, in my analysis of those uh, cemeteries to, to show um, and you put a, you, you put know, a number of those images up on your website, right? Uh, yes. Uh, so the, uh, this is almost ready, but uh, dyingabroad.com uh, <laughs> will have the catalog of uh, all the European Islamic cemeteries. Um, and so I hope that'll be useful to other researchers who are uh, interested in, in, in using tombstones as empirical data. Uh, it's really fascinating and original. Um, we've been talking to Osman Balkan at the University of Pennsylvania about his book, Dying Abroad. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Sahar Aziz of Rutgers University, author of the new book, The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom, published recently by University of California Press. Sahar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure. So let's start. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the book, like where it came from and uh, what the major purpose of it was. The book is the culmination of 20 years of advocacy, litigation, and academic research that I've been engaged in since September 11th, 
which was the day when I was a second year law, uh, first year law student in my second week of law school. And it completely changed my professional trajectory and frankly, my relationship with the United States as a country that I truly believed was democratic and at least committed to racial equality. But when you belong to a community that is the most suspected uh, among the public, in the media, of being disloyal, of being terrorist, of having your religion teach you violence, it completely changes how you view uh, the country that you live in. So the book was really something that I couldn't find in bookstores and in libraries. Uh, as I was conducting my legal research, trying to find support for the fact that this religious minority was being so overtly discriminated against in a country that legally and normatively privileged religious freedom, in a country that proudly considered itself a place for refuge from persecution, religious persecution of, of people from all over the world as, as part of its asylum program. And yet it was acceptable, if not politically profitable, uh, to an expedient to be Islamophobic. And I couldn't find the book that would allow me to, to, to cite that book in my research. And I said, okay, well, I guess it's, I got to write it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the, the key move in the book, and I think what makes it so interesting and compelling is this reading of the place of Islam or of Muslims in the United States through the lens of racialization and viewing it not as a question of religious liberty, but one as kind of a racial justice and injustice. Walk us through that. What does that mean? And how did you arrive there? The paradox that I was exploring couldn't be answered by looking at the problem as merely, well, the Judeo-Christian majority simply believes that the Muslim minority are going to hell. And it's a theological debate and this is purely religious bigotry. I, the only way you could truly understand that paradox, that contradiction, was to examine it, examine Islamophobia as a problem of racism. That Muslim identity was being interpreted the same way that skin color or uh, hair texture or uh, phenotype Mm -hmm. was interpreted vis-a-vis -vis Blacks or Latinos or Native Americans or Asian Americans. It was effectively imputing upon Muslims this almost biological-like uh, permanency of attributes that they were illiberal, anti-democratic, uh, supporting violence, disloyal, and effectively a fifth column. And that's not unfortunately, a new phenomena in the United States. But when you look at it through that racialization lens, things start to make a lot more sense. And they're not as contradictory mm -hmm. as, as one would think if you are looking at the U.S. from outside going, wait a minute, this, the United States isn't like France, which is openly against <laughs> religious freedoms beyond mm -hmm. your home. Right? The United States has laws that intentionally allow religious minorities to be accommodated at work, uh, in education, in public spaces. So again, it was it was contradictory. Uh, so so I think what helps 
in, in the racialization uh, literature analysis is to not examine things for face value or not take things for face value. And in fact, the senior advisors of the Trump administration, uh, as well as Trump himself, were pretty open about the fact that, in their mind, Islam was a polit violent political ideology. And they did that intentionally because they knew that the more they treated Islam as a religion, the more they were susceptible or vulnerable to being called religious bigots, anti-American, threats to religious freedom. And that's an important point for them because many of the supporters of the conservative right, the Trump administration in particular, and I would say large numbers of Republican voters based on the polls that we can see in, in the Pew Research Center and, and other polls that have been conducted over the last 20 years, that many of the people who support that political party are all Christian evangelicals who bemoan their own religious freedom rights being right. under attack by the so-called secular liberals and the secular elite or the co East and West Coast elites. So you've got these individuals or these groups of people who go home at night complaining that they don't have religious freedom, but at the same time, they fully support many of the national security policies, uh, much of the political rhetoric, much of the media depictions of Muslims and Islam as violent and as Muslims deserving to be suspected and all the attendant negative harmful consequences mm -hmm. of such suspicion, such as deportation, denaturalization, um, counterterrorism, prosecution, surveillance, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that's where racialization helps to explain that contradiction. Uh, and it really illuminates the um, the the mainstreaming mm -hmm. of, of, of Islamophobia. Now, you put this into a broader like historical context as well, showing how uh, Jews and Catholics and other religious groups uh, went through these processes of racialization, but then also deracialization. Well, race is a social construct. I am a famous, infamous, notorious critical race theorist. Apparently, uh, the, the nation has awoken to uh, this this uh, legal, critical legal theory in the in legal academy, and you know within that literature and within that discipline, we don't take race as a biological truth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a social construct. What black means in one country is different than what it means in another country. What Arab means, what Asian means, it's about the history, it's about the politics, it's about the economy. And it's all socially constructed, which means that it can be socially deconstructed or socially redefined, again, based on all these kind of interdisciplinary factors. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing research for the book, it intentionally, it initially was going to be focused very much on Muslims and heavily focused on the post 9-11 era. But the more research I conducted and the more I was thinking deeply about race, I I came to the conclusion that, you know, anyone would, as you read the history of the United States, is that this isn't actually as novel as I thought it was. And when I looked at the way in which other religious minorities had been treated, specifically Catholics, Jews, and Mormons, I saw alarming parallels. 
And I realized that anti-Semitism, for example, was not merely a theological dispute of Christianity perceiving Jew Judaism as uh, you know as as heretic. It was much broader than that, right? It was perceiving Jews as genetically inferior, as biologically inferior, as that, in, in other words, it didn't even matter if you were a practicing Jew or not. Just like it doesn't matter if you're a practicing Muslim or not when you're examining Islamophobia, especially post 9-11. It was, uh, anti-Semitism was about Jews as a race, socially constructed as being inferior. And therefore, that then justifies all forms of oppression, you know, from the daily discrimination to the most atrocious form of genocide in, in the form of the Holocaust. And similarly with Catholics in the United States, when you start digging, and I explain this a lot in the first half of the book and give some examples, and you start looking at how anti-Catholicism was manifested, and again, Catholics are mm -hmm. Christians, it wasn't so much about these theological disputes of rituals and how to practice, but it was framed in these people are incapable of self-governance. These Catholics are loyal to the Pope before they're loyal to this country. They are, again, as if mm -hmm. genetically inferior. Now, it's no coincidence that much of that history is within the era of eugenics, which was uh, legalized scientific racism that was incorporated into American law and policy at the time. But their religious identity was one of the factors along with their national origin, along with their physical features, their skin color, their hair texture. And that I think has been lost in our teaching of history in public schools yeah. because people think that race is only about physical characteristics. And when in fact race is also about uh, religious identity and the the impute you know what that connotes or what that imputes upon people. So when you look at that history, you see that um, it's not new. Unfortunately, the racialization of religion for adverse purposes mm -hmm. is not new. And then the in, so that so there's two interesting questions. One is how are they similar, and how are they and how are they different? Right. And so the the similarity, as I talk about in the book is connecting or ascribing those religious identities to very common negative attributes such as unfit for self-governance, uh, illiberal, mm -hmm. uh, not independent and free thinking, and uh, suspicious, which really disloyal to the nation, more loyal to their religious identity group rather than the country. Uh, and effectively not belonging. And more importantly, you can't fix them, right? It's because it's seen as genetic. So even with assimilation, we, you, they're still suspicious. Now, what's interesting is the way in which Catholic and Jewish leaders were successful, although it took them many decades, to expand the definition of social whiteness to mm -hmm. include them. They were always legally white in contrast to Asians or African-Americans and Native Americans, but socially they were not. And there are multiple factors that are involved, which I go into into the book from uh, advocacy to uh, international relations with the start of the Cold War to the Holocaust and America's 
atrocious record of doing nothing, almost nothing, to help uh, the Jewish refugees that were fleeing uh, Europe and fleeing the Holocaust. And as and, the, and that was because of the 1924 immigration law right. that intentionally set immigration national origin quotas very low for those who came from Eastern and Southern Europe. And that was an in, intentional uh, project to whiten the American immigrant population as defined by Northwest European origin and Protestant faith. So that 1924 law is the reason why the United States couldn't legally bring in more Jews or allow more Jewish refugees. Now, there are also political reasons that are based on yeah, racist yeah. anti-Semitism. But the point is, they after all of these different factors from the international to the domestic to the political to the economic, and also the social mobility of the second and third and fourth generation Catholic Americans, whose, again, origins were Ireland and Italy and Eastern Europe, uh, that eventually produced this restructuring of American national identity to be Judeo-Christian. And once you then become inside the tent, the national identity, you it's it's a lot harder to exclude you. It, that's not to say there isn't anti-Semitism. That's not to say that there isn't anti-Catholicism, but it is viewed as unacceptable. It's treated as shameful. It's treated as racist rather than as rational, mm -hmm. patriotic, uh, acceptable. And that's the way Islamophobia continues to be treated. Right? We just saw the exclusion of a mayor from New Jersey from the Eid celebration in the White House. He was invited and the Secret Service says, no, you can't come because you're on. We can't tell you why, but we all know because he was on some watch list. We don't know how he got on the watch list. We don't know how he can get off. He has no due process rights. And that is in 2023, right? 22 years after 9-11. Right. It's it's and imagine if you were just an average Muslim, not the mayor, a well-known mayor in New Jersey. So that's just one example. Right. So. Well, yeah, well, let, let's go there now, then. I mean, you know, so we've been talking about this historical comparative lens, but let's let's drill in now on the racialization of Muslims after 9-11. And you have quite a typology in the book of different ways, the kind of hierarchies within um, you know, this, uh, this identity politics. Um, but let's talk kind of broadly then about how this plays out, um, after 9-11 specifically. So there's two parts to my theoretical framework. The, the first are four factors that I mm -hmm. argue, uh, at a macro kind of meta level shape and define Islamophobia. And then the topology that results right, from those interactions, the topology of the racial Muslims. So those four factors are white supremacy, or you can say white domination. And again, taking into account that white is socially constructed and changes over time. But the most important point is that being white, legally and socially, means that you are more likely than others, more likely than non-whites, to have economic, political, social privileges right, at a group level. The second is xenophobia. Right? We have a long history of being anti-immigrant, uh, paradoxically, because we, we say that we welcome immigrants and we do in fact need immigrant labor, especially when it's cheap. But if 
if you look at politics historically in the U.S., uh, many politicians have run successfully based on anti-immigrant platforms uh, that work, unfortunately. And then Orientalism, which is very unique to the Middle East and North Africa and has been transported from Europe. And that's why the Clash of Civilizations narrative has been uh, salient uh, mm -hmm. in the post 9-11. It started in the 1990s with Samuel Huntington, Bernard Lewis, but but really took flight after 9-11. Uh, and then finally, American empire in Muslim majority countries. And that, I think, took uh, became the predominant foreign policy after World War II in the region. So those and, and in order, the reason why that matters in the racialization process is because the geopolitics and the foreign policy agenda, if it's hegemonic and empire building, it must portray the natives as deserving of our occupation or deserving of our quote unquote protection, right? Or deserving of our intervention, even if it harms them, even if they don't want it or the people don't want it and also warrants supporting their dictatorships, right? So you, in order for the, the public to have buy-in into spending that, the billions, tens of billions of dollars mm -hmm. into empire building in the, Muslim majority world of Middle East, North Africa, you need to portray the natives and the indigenous people as, as deserving of that. Uh, and then that affects those who are in the US that are of those national origins. So what's important to note is you'll notice two of the factors are domestic, right? Right, white dominance and xenophobia, and two of the factors international orientalism and empire, American empire building. Now that then creates what I call the social construct of the racial Muslim, which I note in the book is a pre-9-11 phenomena. But the difference, I argue, between pre-9-11 and post-9-11 is that before 9-11, it ebbed and flowed. It would peak and then it would kind of go on a hiatus. And then it would peak and it was based on specific international crises between the United States and one or more countries in the Middle East and North Africa. So, for example... The crisis, the hostage crisis... Exactly. The Iranian Revolution, Gulf War One. So if you go back and look, the media would portray people of that region, very similar stereotypes, savage, despotic, misogynistic, illiberal, authoritarian, and so on and so forth, without any nuance, without any connection to whatever's happening there, to how right. our foreign policy affects that, uh, and so on. And so the, the, the social construction of the racial Muslim really takes a permanency post 9-11. So my main intervention is after 9-11, the racialization of Muslims was not merely a, a temporary response to an international crisis, but it became a permanent component of racial politics in the United States, sadly, right? And this incident with Mayor Muhammad Khairallah is the latest example. So the racial Muslim topology incorporates identity performance. You can't underestimate how intergroup racism affects intra-group dynamics and intra-group behaviors. And you that applies to any group that's targeted or oppressed or subordinated or discriminated against. And the most common understanding is the pressures to assimilate, but it's more complicated than that. And you have to examine each group to understand how that response to oppression works. So with 
Muslims, what I'm arguing is you have five uh, categories. The first is the uh, religious dissident Muslim. The second is the religious Muslim who's either apolitical or mainstream political. The third is the secular dissident. The fourth is the secular Muslim who's not religious and apolitical or mainstream. And then finally, you have the former Muslim who's converted out of the faith and is often uh, heavily funded by conservatives and the Islamophobic groups who trope them around the country and the world to confirm, look, I left the religion because it is misogynistic, because it is despotic, because it is illiberal and supports violence. Uh, so that's where you see many of these books by by certain, especially women who, mm -hmm. while they may have legitimately converted out of the faith, which is completely their right, it is it is not a coincidence that they're receiving so much funding to promote their books that are virulently Islamophobic. But if but the way that if you go back to, for example, the religious dissident Muslim, I argue that they are the most likely to be targeted by the state. The state doesn't have the resources to target everybody. They do have to be strategic. And the but who gets selected is based on uh at least in the muslims case how religious they are and how dissident they are especially if they're dissident on u.s foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis muslim majority countries that they challenge american empire so if they if they're critical of israeli human rights records if they're critical of the u.s blind support for israel without regard for palestinian human rights that well, in, that brings them up to the dissident Muslim. And then if they're religious, the per, the suspicion is, well, we don't know if you will join Hamas. We don't know if you're a secret Al-Qaeda member. We don't know if you support uh, Hezbollah, right, etc. So merely being religious and dissident, even though those are two fundamental American rights entrenched in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, but when you experience racism, you don't get the full panoply of rights, right? Those rights are on paper, but they don't apply to you in practice. They apply to the privileged majority, right? And 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 then again, class and other things intersect. Then you go to the religious Muslim who is not political or is just pretty mainstream politics, doesn't take any controversial stands, doesn't dissent, but their religiosity makes them suspicious. Because again, we don't know if you're hiding your sympathies for these terrorist groups. Because if you're associating Islam with violence and Islam with terrorism, then by definition, if you're a religious, then you are presumed to be sympathetic to these politically motivated, violent, non-state actors. Uh, and then the secular dissident and then the secular. So the secular racial Muslim is what would qualify as the model minority Muslim. Secular, completely assimilated into you know, secular Western norms and not involved in politics. Uh, embraces the neoliberal capitalist system and the consumer society, thinks that America is meritocratic, doesn't think racism is a real problem, and just buys into the system and is a grateful immigrant. Right? And I should note that, and I state this up front in the book, the book focuses explicitly on um, what I call immigrant children and grandchildren yeah. of immigrant Muslims from Muslim-majority countries because the portrayals, especially post-9-11, of the terrorist Muslim were all, they, they were Arab looking people. And people didn't know the difference between someone who looked Pakistani, who was actually Pakistani or Indian, or who was Afghani or who was Arab, but it was not the African-American Muslim, even though there are 30% African-Americans in 
uh, 30% Muslims were African-American and they absolutely did experience Islamophobia. But my argument, which, you know, and I go into detail of, of why I make this argument and I cite other scholars who agree, is that African-American Muslims are black first. They're racialized as black and experience all the various um, indignities and material harms and discrimination that comes with that. And then being Muslim makes them a particularly dangerous type of black person, right? A particularly right. dangerous or subversive uh, type of black person. And so you have this conflation of the two, but this book is very much about um, the the 70% that are, their origins are from Muslim majority countries. Now, one, one thing which is, I think, important about your book is that you're not only studying kind of discourses and media and that, that you're, you're coming out of a legal tradition and um, out, of, out of law school, and um, that these things are actually kind of, some of them are legally encoded, some of them are social practices, but how does looking at this from a legal perspective uh, kind of shape your thinking about this? It confirms why critical race theory is a helpful contribution to legal, uh, the legal literature because it corroborates the critique that simply because rights are memorialized on paper does not mean that they are actually enforced in practice. Uh, and that simply writing or drafting or legislating racially neutral laws does not fix or stop racism right? or bias or discrimination because it is really the selective enforcement of these racially or facially neutral laws that produces the racism and the, the disparate outcomes. And the law does not, thanks to a, a Supreme Court case in the 1970s, Washington v. Davis, if you want to file an equal protection clause to argue that you are in fact being discriminated against by the state uh, on account of your, your race, national origin, or, or color, uh, and even on based on your religion, you have to show intent. You have to show that the government intended, they, they intended to discriminate against you when they enforced a particular law or passed a particular law. You cannot make a case based on what we call disparate impact, which is the, the effect is discriminatory as opposed to having to show the intent is discriminatory. So why surveillance and, and surveillance and profiling and the like, if it's in the name of security, doesn't count. Exactly. So unless you can show that the government said, go out there and surveil only the Muslims, go out there and surveil only uh, the Arabs, which if anyone has half a brain, isn't going to do that. They, right. And they know it's illegal. But that's where the sociological and the political uh, and the international relations impact law is these are human beings and they're socialized and educated in the United States uh, within you know, not knowledge bases that unfortunately um, are racist. And so if they believe, if they don't know the Middle East well, if they don't understand Muslims and Islam, then they're much more prone to fall prey to the propaganda uh, and the Islamophobia, including within the government, even if it's not at the conscious level, sometimes it is like Trump. I think Trump was very overt about it. But I, you see it even within those who identify as liberals or, or Democrats. 
And that's where you see the targeting of Muslim communities, for example, in the countering violent extremism programs. So I always ask, you know, audiences when I speak with them is, what do you think would have happened if January 6, 2021 had been conducted by Muslims? Right. I mean, you can say blacks, you can say Latinos. It was it was white people who were far right wing and who violated many laws. Uh, and yes, they're being prosecuted, but it's after the fact, which means that there wasn't very much surveillance. There wasn't very much investigation. There was no preventative measures, or if they were, they were minimal and ineffective because the attempted insurgency happened. And that's separate from the fact that they weren't shot at sight, which I think they would have been if they had been racial minorities or Muslims or you know other minority groups. And yet over the last 20 years, we've had kind of the, the weight of the government and all of the authorities that the government has targeting 1% of the population, which are Muslims. The, the estimate is a little over 4 million people from the surveillance of the mosques to the counter-violent extremism programs, which go to mosques, go to businesses, go to community groups and say, can you help us find the terrorists in your community? We want to give you money to essentially help us spy on yourselves. That's unacceptable. And, and the fact that they did it in plain sight and said, oh, we're just doing this to, to preserve national security Nobody seemed to ask the question of why are you presuming that four to six million people are prone or vulnerable to terrorism simply because individuals who committed 9-11, individuals who committed other terrorist acts, mainly abroad, but to some extent, a much smaller extent in the U.S., were Muslim. Do we do that with white males? No, we don't. We treat them as individuals. We treat them as individual wrongdoers, as we should. And the only time that we would extend our investigation to others who may share their identity is based on articulable facts and probable cause. But we don't have this racist, this sweeping racist assumption that, well, we got to watch out for you white people. We have to watch out for you Christians. We have to watch out for all of you Republicans. And, and if a government tried to do that, administration tried to do that, the public would rightfully be outraged. So that those are the ways, it's really more in the selective enforcement of the law. And in fact, I have a new article that just came out in Georgetown Law Review, Georgetown Law Journal called um, Race, Entrapment, and the Manufacturing of Homegrown Terrorism, where I look at uh, the various cases, counterterrorism cases, and show the abuse of informants and undercover agents uh, in stinging sting operations that I argue are highly dubious and effectively manufacture uh, these terrorism-related cases in order to feed this propaganda machine that we need more money, uh, we need more uh, FBI agents, we need to keep spying, we need to keep investigating. And you know, Muslim communities are paying a high price for that. One thing which is really interesting, though, is that if you remember, like, uh, as I know you do, uh, when Trump came out with uh, the the Muslim ban, that there was actually a very strong backlash against it, kind of from across uh, civil society, um, and including from conservative groups who saw this as kind of contrary to American values. And I wonder how how do you think about that in terms of kind of the dynamic interaction between these forces in the political realm? Yeah. 
it was a positive development for all the wrong reasons in so far as mainstream politicians and civil society and engaged citizens recognizing finally in 2017, which is 16 years later, that Islamophobia was deeply entrenched and that it was the real problem that was beyond simply just harming Muslim communities, but also threatening our democracy and transitioning us into or harking us back to a dark era, I think, in our country in the early 1900s where uh, xenophobia was much more at least acceptable and and systematic. But it was also a convergence of interest. There's always the question lingering in my mind that if the opposition to Trump wasn't so high by Democratic voters and liberals and women, uh, would people have shown up in those numbers at the airports? In other words, were they there to condemn the Muslim ban or were they there to condemn Trump? Uh, and possibly both. Yeah. Now, fortunately, it doesn't really matter, at least if you're interested in combating Islamophobia and if you're interested in combating xenophobia. But I do think that that was an important kind of political event that that caused multiple groups of people who had different grievances vis-a-vis -vis Trump to come together, um, sparked by his you know, unacceptable and, and anti-American and extremely Islamophobic uh, Muslim ban, which, by the way, ultimately was upheld by the Supreme Court after it was uh, limited in its scope, but it was still considered legal. So that tells you something else about the law. You know, when you're dealing with immigration law, the government can discriminate based on national origin as long as they don't explicitly state so, as long as they say this is based on you know, our national security interests or our economic interests or our, uh, diplomatic interests. Similarly, with national security, the the executive branch is at its pinnacle of authority and the, the courts rarely intervene. They exercise uh, judicial deference kind of at the highest levels, even when the evidence is clear, like Trump and his speeches to the public, the, the courts even then won't mm -hmm. interfere. Uh, so I think many people had a hard lesson in the limitations of the American legal system in protecting vulnerable minority groups from racism and discrimination and bigotry, and that perhaps the more effective uh, solution is political mobilization, cross-racial coalitions, and you know, a set of politics and norms that does not accept the privileging of a particular group simply because of its skin color uh, or its immigrant story. And so we have we still have a lot of work to do. And I hope that this book contributes to that conversation and pierces through a lot of our myths of American exceptionalism. Because I think if we don't recognize the limitations of our country, and our laws and our politics, especially if it those limitations directly contradict the ideals we teach our children in school, then we're never going to advance. We're just going to continue to be the same, but with different rhetoric, right? And different propaganda. And ironically, we're more than willing 
and 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 we are accepting of critiquing other nations, especially in the Middle East and North Africa. We never hesitate to call dictatorship for what it is, religious bigotry for what it is, racism for what it is, you know, whatever flaws those societies have. Yet we we can't seem to turn the mirror on ourselves. And even if it's of a different degree, and yes, there are different factors, it's still we still have some very serious problems. And only when things like the Russian intervention with our elections uh, happen, some crisis or the severe and extreme polarization of, of our citizenry occurs, or you have Black Lives Matter movement, which is effectively like a revolt saying enough decades and decades and decades of anti-Black racism and hundreds and thousands of Black men and women being shot by police. Meanwhile, the law protects them through qualified immunity. Uh, so we have problems and we need to address them as seriously as we're willing to address, you know, countries abroad. Well, great. We've been speaking to, uh, to Sahar Aziz about her new book, The Racial Muslim. Mm-hmm.